a friend of mine pastors a church out west. I'll call him Pastor Matt. And one day, a uh, he got a phone call, and the person said, "Are you aware that uh, Ron is having an affair, and it's with a woman that he he works with?" And so. Pastor Matt's stomach sank and he thought, oh man, Ron is our church's part-time worship leader. He sits on our elder board. He's been a member of this church for over 30 years and he is married. And so apparently is this woman that he's with. So Pastor Matt sat with Ron and said, hey, I've heard that you're in a relationship with this woman. Is this true? Well, Ron became furious. He said, look, I, I'm not going to be secretive, but I do want to be private about the details of the relationship. I mean, God is doing a great thing in our relationship. God has led us to each other. And then realizing kind of what that sounded like, Ron took another run at it. I can see how maybe it could sound like someone was trying to rationalize this and say it was a relationship of God, but that's not really what I'm doing. And Pastor Matt realized he's, uh, Ron is defensive, he, he's angry, and he still hasn't admitted a thing. So we asked Ron, are you willing to just come to our next elder board and just clearly state, are you in a relationship with this woman or not? Well, Ron wasn't willing to do that. In fact, the very suggestion of that was an insult. This church wouldn't even be here, he said, if it weren't for me. I did the, insert F-bomb, work. So instead of the entire elder board meeting, uh, Pastor Matt and two of the elders sat with Ron. And after two hours, Ron offered to resign his position as part-time music leader and also from his position as, as elder. And so Pastor Matt said, okay, I accept your resignation. Well, when people in the church heard about this, they challenged Pastor Matt. They said, look, you know, Ron's going through a hard time right now with his dad dying recently and all. I mean, he needs our care. He needs our love. And how dare you even talk to him about this right now? I mean, you should not have accepted his resignation. Others in the church said, hey, Matt, both marriages here were dead anyway. I mean, so they were headed for a divorce. So I mean, really, this is kind of an affair in name only. Still others said, hey, you know what Ron does on his own? That's not really our business. And still others said, well, look, I mean, nobody's saying that what Ron did was okay, but I mean, he felt kicked out because you made membership conditional. And so some elders proposed that the church write a group message to Ron asking for his forgiveness for hurting him. Based on my experience, friends, I would say that if you and I spend any amount of time in church, any local church, we will eventually face a situation where someone in the church acts out sexually, immorally. And so how do we handle that? I mean, how should that kind of situation be handled? Uh, let's say you were being asked to write a, write a blog post or something about outlining Here's what a church should do in that situation. What would you put in it? 
back in the, the days of our American colonies in a few Puritan congregations. And then of course this got amplified in Nathaniel Hawthorne's imagination. It's handled severely and it's handled hypocritically. Uh, when Hester Prynne gets pregnant without a husband around, what happens to her? Well, she gets put in jail and then she's forced to wear this giant scarlet A for the rest of her life, despite the fact that the child's father is the pastor. So today, most Americans and, and most American churches have run as far away from that as possible. And, and many churches today, I would say generally kind of feel like this. We are so beyond that. I mean, what really matters is not so much how, how perfect everybody is because everybody's gonna make mistakes. It's really the, how accepting we are. So what is the answer then? When someone in the church acts out sexually or morally, how do we handle that? How should that be handled? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us that answer very clearly. And we get that answer because in one of the early Christian churches that the missionary Paul started, a situation came up where a man was sleeping with his dad's wife. So let's look at how Paul, who started this church, says we're supposed to handle the situation. Now, as we jump in tonight, may I issue this advance warning? You know, sometimes we hit Bible passages that fit very nicely with our cultural values. There's significant overlap with our cultural values, and so the passage kind of reinforces what we largely already believe. This is not one of those. This is one of those passages that cuts against our cultural grain and one that we will find hard in places to listen to and to accept. And so I'm just giving you a fair warning up front. All right, are you ready? Let's dive in. If you would look at 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, the passage read tonight by Eric, Paul writes to the church and he says, I can hardly believe this report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Now, some of the folks in the church are from Jewish backgrounds, and they know this is wrong. Leviticus 18 just spells it out. But even the members of the church who are from complete pagan backgrounds, where there's any and every kind of sexuality and contact going on, they even in that world, incest is rare and, and looked down on. So so your first, there's two problems in this church. The first problem is the obvious one, a guy sleeping with his father's wife. He's having sex with someone who's married and hugely violating his dad and his stepmom. But that's only problem number one. Problem number two comes in verse two. It's not just the guy, it's everyone else in the church. He's, Paul says, you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, you should remove this man from your fellowship. So apparently the rest of the congregation is not only feeling okay with what this guy is doing, they feel great about it. Hey man, we're not uptight. Like we're progressive here. We live, we let live. We're tolerant. We know how free we are in Christ. But Paul is not buying it. Verse six, your boasting about this is terrible. Or as the message translation puts it, your flip and callous arrogance. So how do you solve a guy who's acting out in a church that sees nothing much wrong with that? Here's how. And if I could put my own sort of phrase on Paul's inspired teaching here, I might express it this way. Your body 
matters more than you think. Your body matters more than you think. So let's take this in. Your body, your physical body, my physical body matters more than I might naturally think. And Paul then starts to unpack it for us. He says that part of the reason your body matters more than you think is that everywhere your body goes, you take the rest of the church with you. Hello. So whatever one person does with their body, it affects everyone else in the church. That's his, this principle that he brings up in verse six. He says, you're boasting about this is terrible because don't you realize that this sin's like a little bit of yeast that spreads through the entire batch of dough. Now, you and I, being modern Americans, generally think of sin as kind of, if we even accept that category anymore, as kind of tiny. It's invisible. No one has to know about it except us. Hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and it hurts nobody else. It's my life, right? And Paul says, really? Because yeast is teeny and invisible, and it changes everything it touches. But this is how we, we don't think like that. In the church out west that I mentioned at the beginning, people in the church said what Ron does on his own, that's his own business. And Paul's saying, you know what the truth is? Because we're all connected in Christ, what Ron does is all of our business. No, see, your, your body and my body matters more than we think it does because wherever we take our body, we take Church of the Savior with us. We're all connected. The yeast spreads through the entire batch of dough. It affects us all. Now, what does Paul mean by this analogy that the, the yeast will spread through the dough? He, he might possibly be referring to like one example of a person getting, doing and seemingly getting away with what everybody else used to think was unthinkable will be like this, make it socially plausible. And so the sociologist might say, hey, it, it, it's this imitation. It's why, like in a workplace, if the boss lets somebody always come in late, always leave early, <laughs> and always cut out whenever they need to, and, and then pretty soon everybody else is doing it, right? Because they see it. And I think that's part of Paul's thinking here probably, but more likely, Paul is teaching that the connection between you and me in a church is deeper than just visual, sociology, imitation. It can't be fully explained by sociology because it's a spiritual reality. What he's saying in this chapter and the next is we all share the same spirit of God. So it's like, if I can use a different analogy, we have one shared bloodstream. So whatever one person takes in makes us all sick. When Bill Hybels committed his sinful acts, it didn't just affect him. It affected every single person at Willow Creek Community Church, at the Willow Creek Association, and those who purchased his books and those who looked up to him. Did you know that after the, in the aftermath of that, the entire senior leadership and elder board of Willow Creek resigned? They all stepped down. They all lost those positions. The church lost almost 30% of its attenders. The budget the first year out came in $3 million short. And so what happens? 50 full-time staff members get laid off. Now think about this. One person sitting over here, seemingly privately, seemingly it's their own business, and 50 people lose their jobs. And sometimes people today, they go, oh, that's just one bad apple. No, the whole point of the proverb about a bad apple is that it doesn't just stay one bad apple. 
It rots every other apple in the basket. And so Paul teaches us this. When one person in the church is acting out, don't look the other way. Take it seriously and deal with it. Verse 4, you must call a meeting of the church, and then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Now, let's pause here. This, this, this phrase, hand him over to Satan, is a phrase on which if you ask maybe six commentators, you'll get 14 opinions. <laughs> but I, I think it's safe to say that the majority would agree that what Paul's talking about is he means placing this person outside the church. Inside the church, he has the many blessings that protect people inside a church from evil. Like we have each other's prayers. That means a lot. We have worship together. That, that cleanses us all. We have communion where we share in the body and blood of Christ, which restores us spiritually. And now this guy's going to be outside that where he doesn't have that protection. And now he's exposed. And in Paul's world, remember, it's not like there's 10 other churches down the street where this guy can plug into. Being outside this church is being outside the church. But even saying all of that, and that's severe, his point is not to tear the person down, but to hopefully build them back up. Paul says the reason we're only do only reason we're doing this is so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Or as people teach us about working with those with addictions, if they're not listening to their conscience anymore, maybe they'll start listening to the consequences. Now today, friends, I've I've tried to explain this clearly and I and set it forth. And yet I still have to say, most people who hear this, they just go, oh man, I hope my church never ever does anything close to this. I mean, this sounds somewhere between awkward and abusive. I just, I don't know. Well, I found very helpful this week, something that scholar Kenneth Bailey says. He says this, by calling for a church meeting, why does Paul say the entire church should be here? He's avoiding a trap. Because some people in this church want to leave all the mess until Paul arrives. And so then they don't have to do the dirty work of like confronting this guy and, and getting him to change. And then whatever Paul does, they can then blame Paul for whatever he decides. Well, yeah, I didn't really agree. I thought that was too harsh. Or I thought that was too lenient. But, you know, Paul. And so Paul says, um, no, y'all take responsibility for your life as a church. But here's my guidance. Don't do the Jewish solution, which would be to stone this guy to death. And don't do the Roman solution, which is to turn him into the authorities for trial and punishment. No, throw him out of the church. Hopefully the shock of that will lead him to repentance. And that is your only hope now for him and for yourselves. Well, to summarize, friends, can you see that the Bible here is inviting us into a radically different way of seeing, of living, of knowing that we have this intense connection with other believers, that there is a community that runs deeper than any sociology. It is the spirit of God living within us and connecting us all. And it's teaching us, therefore, that your body matters more than you think, because wherever your body goes, you take the rest of the church with you. And I, I trust me, I take this very seriously. Wherever my body goes, I'm taking church of the Savior with me. Oh, that I might finish the course well, like, like Bill and Linda did. That's my prayer. You know, uh, now I have one more thing to add from Paul's teaching here in these chapters. 
and I can set it up this way. Karen and I watched The Voice this season, and very often uh, in these songs that are, are sung, the vocalists will be singing along, and then as, as the song gets near its end, they take it up higher. They modulate to a higher key, and then the song becomes even kind of more compelling. And Paul does something like that here as he's explaining to this church how to handle the situation. He says, look, not only does your body matter because everywhere your body goes, you take the church with you, your body matters because everywhere you go, you take Jesus with you. Or in our situation, not only do you and I take Church of the Savior with us, we take Jesus the Savior with us. Now, now listen to this in, in chapter 6 and verse 15. Don't you realize, he says, that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Or chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? and was given to you by God. Now, friends, we have all been raised and cultured in a church, not in a church, but in a society, in a place and time where people think, it's my body, and I'll party if I want to. And Paul says, no, you do not belong to yourself, unquote. And then, quote, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body, unquote. Now, if you're on social media, as I am, you know that a number of evangelical or exvangelical leaders are saying, essentially, you know, it's a new day. It's, it's time that Christians stop being so uptight about sex. That's the way forward. And Paul says in this passage, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And here he's like playing on words, your physical body and the church body of which you are a part. Oh, friends of the Savior, this is so countercultural tonight. It is not easy for you and me to lean into this truth, this way of seeing, this way of living. But can I tell you, when a church in, in humility and courage both, does its work to address sin, people get healed. When it, when it blows it, people get hurt, yes. But when churches obey the apostolic teaching here, people get healed. In fact, this guy that we're talking about that Paul's saying, you should throw him out of your fellowship. Many commentators, including the great early uh, church fathers, St. Basil, St. Chrysostom, they think that's the one who's referred to in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now it's time to forgive and comfort him. So it appears that the discipline actually worked. It had its good intended effect and this guy came to his senses and came back to the church. In my early years of pastoring, uh, the church I was serving then sponsored a refugee family from Africa. And it included a mom in her late 40s and her young adult daughter, whom I'll call Anali. And so the church kind of helped them get an apartment and helped them furnish that. And as recent immigrants uh, need, they needed rides to the doctor and to, to job interviews and so on. And so several of our church people drove them. And uh, especially one of our 20-something guys really took this on, a, a guy named uh, Joe at least that's what I'm going to call him yeah, for the sake of this story. And Joe began spending more and more time with the family and uh, 
several months went by and Anali called and said, I'm pregnant. She was feeling overwhelmed and anxious. I mean, the family was barely getting their feet under them. I mean, how would they pay the medical bills and how would she be able to work? And the father was, you guessed it, our member. Well, my heart exploded. I, into little fragments, one of our people representing our church, doesn't he know that he took advantage of every single power dynamic that exists? I mean, native versus recent immigrant, English speaker versus English learner, sponsor versus sponsored, male versus female, and he used it all for himself. So I sat with Joe and I said, Joe, man, our church was entrusted with caring for this family. This is a sacred trust. And you were one of our church's representatives to serve and help them. And you get a nolly pregnant. I felt so ashamed, honestly, that our church had violated this vulnerable family. Ah, and Joe didn't really get that. He said, you know, we love each other. He was mostly mad about the fact that the news of the pregnancy had come out as if it wasn't gonna become obvious. Well, Paul says when someone is, who's a Christian, someone who's a believer gets stuck like this and starts thinking, oh, it's my life, it's my body and I'll do with it what I want to, then it's time to bring them back to their senses and draw a line in the sand. So I asked Joe to, to enter a, focused period of time where there would be some discipline and there would be focused pastoral care. And thankfully, he said yes. And so he, he entered into the process. And over time, and ultimately, he, he completed that process and he stayed in the church. It had its, its good effect and, and what I had hoped for. And what happened with Anali? Well, Karen and I pastored her during her pregnancy. And then sadly, she suffered a miscarriage. And we, we held a small memorial service for, for them and, and this child. And as part of that, Karen handed Anali a gift from the church. It was a sketch hand-drawn by, by one of our members of two African hands clasped together. We framed it and gave it to her. And when, at, as part of this service, and she took it and looked at it and began to cry. And then she hugged Karen and would not let go. All friends, these are challenging words for us all, but I tell you, and I have seen it, when the church acts like the church, the healing can begin. Amen.